Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. No, I don't believe in fate, but I do believe that we make decisions and then our decisions form us in lots of ways. And then we're just constantly creating a new set of possibilities going forward. Like once you make one decision, your opportunity set going forward shifts. I think it's extremely likely that we will have a personalized anti-aging drug. It's going to be different for, for us, for each of us, but I think we're going to be we're going to be taking that. And I think that will happen sooner rather than later. And I hope that we can begin stitching this country back together. I mean, we didn't fight World War II as Democrats and Republicans. We fought it as American. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Jamie Metzl. Jamie is an American technology futurist, a geopolitical expert, and a writer. His new book is called Hacking Darwin, a genetic engineering for the future of humanity. He also served on the Clinton administration and he worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under a guy that goes by the name Joe Biden. That is like three sentences of his bio, there's no way that I could go through everything that Jamie has accomplished. I promise you, he is the smartest, craziest, most interesting guy that I've ever interviewed. I heard him on Joe Rogan's show. I knew I had to have him on the show, and I really want you to just dig right into this. He's kind, elegant, smart, socially responsible, I just, he's sort of like everything that you wish you would be when you think of the attributes that you want to have. So in the spirit of work hard, play hard, he falls squarely in the middle of both of those things with an incredible, what I perceive to be balance in both of those areas of his life. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jamie Metzl. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Rob. Very happy to be with you. You know what, man? I am beyond excited to do this interview. And here's why. Because you are probably the smartest, most principled, most go-after-your-dreams guy that I've ever had on the show. I got tired of researching your credentials after four hours. And I said, I'm done with this guy. This is like, it just doesn't stop. It keeps going. So there's no way possible in 59 minutes, I'm going to be able to cover one-tenth of 1% 1 of your life, but I'm going to do the best that I can. So welcome to the well, show. Thank you so much, Rob. You're very sweet. And I know my mother is paying you. Uh, so whatever it is, it's worth it. Thank you for the kind words. All right. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to rewind the clock and take you back to growing up in Kansas City in the 70s yep. and the 80s. And I'd like you to look at this through the lens of your dad, Kurt, who came from Nazi Europe, and yep, in, and maybe talk about in what ways did your dad's story influence what you're doing today? 
Yeah, it, it's so essential. And, and thanks, Rob, for, for starting there because it's really important for me. So just as a little bit of background, my father was born in a little village in Austria. And when he was three years old, uh, the Nazis came to the little village and they just threw, I mean, there were not very many Jewish families, uh, but they threw them on the back of a truck. Um, they had one little suitcase and threw them in the in the uh, ghetto in, in Vienna and where my great grandparents died. They were diabetics and didn't have insulin. Most of the rest of that side of the family was all killed, but they very, I mean, it's kind of an incredible story, but they escaped into Switzerland, which most people who tried to escape into Switzerland were just handed back to the Nazis and killed. But my father and, and my and, and grandparents actually were successful. Then they were displaced persons in Switzerland for 10 years during the war, came to the United States in 1948 and they were just refugees, not speaking a word of English. They showed up in, in New York and the Jewish Refugee Agency was just trying to get refugees out of the eastern seaboard to places in the middle of the country where they could more easily be absorbed. And so they gave them a choice of going to Sioux City, Iowa, Louisville, Kentucky, or Kansas City. No one spoke a word of English. No one had ever heard of any of those places but my father, when he was a little kid, used to read these little German Westerns. Um, and he remembered Dodge City, Kansas. And he said, oh, Kansas. Like, oh, I know that word. So they said, okay, Kansas. And then they, they sent them to Kansas City. Um, years later, when I was launching my campaign, I was running for Congress, and I launched my, my campaign in Union Station. And what I said there is, so 1948, they arrive at Union Station and they had little placards with a string around their neck saying who they are. And when I was running for Congress in 2004, I got this call from this little old lady who wanted to meet. And it turned out she was a little Irish American woman. Her job was just to stand on the, at the train station in Kansas City and look for people with those placards so she could say, oh, we're going to take you to this house. Anyway, so whatever. Many years later, I, 60 years later, I, 55 years later, I launched my congressional campaign from exactly that spot. Anyway, so they arrived there, not speaking a word of English, um, opened a little kosher meat market. And when anybody would come into the meat market, um, then they'd say, how much is this sandwich? And my grandmother would say, it's 25 cents for the sandwich and five cents for Kurt's medical school fund. And that was how, you know, that was how it all happened. He went to New York for his residency and, and, and met my mother. And then for me, so that was always a big part of my life. When I was a freshman at Brown, I met a classmate of mine who was a survivor of the Cambodian genocide. Um, and it would just kind of stun me. Here was this guy, my own age, who lived through basically very similar experience to my father. And yet at that time, nobody knew about it. I certainly didn't know about it. And that led to kind of a, I had always been passionate about principles and ideas that I said, well, geez, if, that, if this is still happening now, and I'm just so lucky to be alive, just with this quirky history, what's my responsibility? And that, that's kind of a foundation for kind of most everything I've done. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because when you met that friends in uh, Brown, and mm -hmm. he's describing, uh, it's a he, I'm assuming, um, is yes. describing the uh, Cambodian uh, genocide. You had no idea that genocide was even going on. And yeah. frankly, most people, I believe, would probably do nothing about it and just move on and say, yeah, it's, it's a lot of sadness in the world, that's for sure. And, you know, move on. Uh, but that's not what, what you did. You decided to work with a refugee camp in Cambodia. Where do you believe that that hard wiring, that I'm going to call it, came from? And maybe even talk about what that experience in Cambodia taught you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of hard wiring, I mean, I, I write about in my book, Hacking Darwin, which I know we're, we'll talk about later, about what's the relationship between nature and nurture. I mean, a big chunk of who we are is just genetic and I'm probably some kind of genetic idealist and optimist. And then part of it is, is experience and certainly growing up um, with 
with you know, my certainly my my grandfather, my father's father died before I was born, but my grandmother was you know a, a wonderful person, but kind of a you know person from a little village in Austria, and then her her lost brothers and sisters. I mean, it really, I feel like it would kind of touch anybody. But then there was the thing of why is it. Why is it my personal responsibility? Uh, because lots of people say, "Oh, there's a sad thing," and and now I'm going to go work for for Goldman Sachs, <laughs> right? And um, and and nothing wrong with that. Um, but I guess for me, I kept asking this question: Well, what's my responsibility? There's like this this you know, quirky um, thing that I that I'm that my father and his parents survived, and and what what's the obligation? that comes with that. And I think that was really just an, an important piece. And then once you start going, and then so you mentioned, so in, in when I was a 18, I went and I actually, I, I, that summer after my freshman year at Brown, I was, was went home to Kansas City. I was supposed to be a counselor in a day camp. I quit on the first day, had a garage sale of all the junk in my parents' uh, house, and bought a ticket to Thailand and on my own as a kid who I didn't know anything about anything, made my way to a refugee camp and volunteered. Um, and it was just like life-changing just to see all of this just sadness. And it made me feel like, well, now that you, I, I saw it and I saw it at such a young and impressionable age, like it was hard to say, well, all right, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and I'm going to live some other life. I just kept asking myself, What's my responsibility? Um, probably a genetics to ask, ask that question. And then I felt like, well, I didn't want to, I looked at, I considered like maybe I should just, you know, spend my entire career working to help refugees. But it's just, if that felt like the end, there's like a long process for how a refugee is, is created. And these Cambodian refugees, and there's some Vietnamese and, and Hmong Hill tribe, like that came from the certainly French colonialism and the end, the end of the way that the post-war world was structured, and then uh, all these kinds of terrible mistakes that the U.S. made in the, in, in uh, entering and, and engaging in the Vietnam War, there were like all these bad decisions. And at the end, there's a refugee. And so, if, you, if you're someone like me, I guess, who kind of tries to see the big picture, it's hard to say, "Well, I'm just going. I want to help refugees." But if all you do is help refugees, there'll just be more and more refugees. So then I started asking the question, well, how can I be part of a process of just helping the, my country and the world make better decisions? And that that's, has been an important part of it. Okay, so in your, in your book, which we're gonna get into, but I'd like to sort of like the questions I'm gonna ask you on your background, um, I, I'd like to use the lens of your book to sort of like answer some of those questions. And we talked sure. earlier about, you know, nature and nurture, but I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are here on sort of a third category, which would be spiritual, you know, that, that mm. nebulous, I'm not really sure where to, where to put this in. How much of this do you think was your path and it was your, like this was just the way it was gonna happen and you were in a raft and you were just going down the rapids and there wasn't a whole lot that you can do about it, nature or nurture wise, this is, this is just your path. Do you ever think about that or do you think that there was any component there or is that just too woo woo? You know, it's not too woo woo. So first I'll start with nature, nurture, and then, and then I'll go to spiritual. So nature, nurture, um, as there's different way, different terminologies people use to describe it, but there's a lot of who we are that's just our genetics. And you look at other, uh, other animals like the Lombard's chameleons in Madagascar. The basic way it works is that the mothers lay the eggs, um, then the entire adult population dies, each generation, and then the eggs hatch, and, it, and it's kind of like there are no parents, you're just a, a, a chameleon. And so everything that you need to survive needs to be totally baked into your genetics because there's nobody around to teach you. I mean, you can have some good and bad experiences. But humans, I mean, one of the, the, the great assets that we have is that we have parenting. We have all of this opportunity and then beyond parenting to, so that culture can be part of our evolutionary process. And that's why we can, you know, our brains aren't that dissimilar from 
chimpanzees or bonobos, but, but we've been able to systematize our, our, our culture. And there's always a debate and there's twin studies that help get to the bottom of this issue of how nature, how much nature are we, how genetic are we, um, how environmental are we or, or nurture. And my guess based on, I mean, there's like 18 million twins, pairs of twins have been studied over 50 years. I mean, if I, all in all, I'd say we're probably about half and half. It's just a, an informed guess. But then there's this question that you raised, um, Rob, of spiritual. And it's, it's really hard because what I always say is, um, if you believe that human beings are infinitely complex, then there's just a whole realm that we can't understand. And certainly the, the word spiritual, it, it connotes that, or when people talk about God or, or any of those things. But if you believe, as I do, that human beings are single-cell organisms gone wild over almost 4 billion years of evolution, whatever spirituality that we have is in some ways connected to whatever spirituality we believe single-cell organisms have today. And that doesn't mean it's zero, um, because there's a, lot that we, there's a lot that we do understand about single-cell organisms. There's a lot that, where there's just the, the, this energy that was the first spark of life and, and all of life shares. We all share that common root. Uh, we're all connected in that way. And, and you know, there's a lot that we just, we just don't, uh, don't understand. So, but uh, with your specific question, is this some kind of preordained path? I, I don't believe so. I don't, I don't believe in fate. But I do believe that we make decisions and then our decisions, our decisions form us in lots of ways. And then we're just constantly creating a new set of possibilities going forward. Like once you make one decision, your opportunity set going forward shifts. And so things start to feel inevitable. But you could, same person could be easily on some other path that would feel equally inevitable. Interesting. Um, okay. I want to uh, stay with Southeast, Southeastern Asia for a bit. You dug even deeper and you got a doctorate in Southeast, Southeastern, a I can't even say it. Southeast Asian studies, yep. Thank you. Um, yeah. But you didn't just, you, you didn't just get the doctorate. You, you went to Oxford to get the doctorate, right? And you became- not to, not to pat myself on the back. And I did the whole doctorate in two years. Okay, right. Okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna get into all of these things that are gonna make your, your mother very, very proud. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna, she's gonna be the first one I'm sending this to. So you became a human rights officer for the UN. What does a human rights officer do? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, basically all the jobs that I've had in my entire life, People say, like, what is that? So, <laughs> yeah, right. um, I mean, like, you know, you, you weren't like, you know, I, I sell hot dogs. Okay, yeah, I got no, it. No, I know. It's true. <laughs> so at least a little bit of background. Um, Cambodia, um, it, it was a French colony. Uh, then they got pulled in, to, and then there was independence. Then got pulled into the Vietnam, after a coup in 1970, got pulled into the Vietnam War. In 1975, the Khmer Rouge um, uh, took over. That's when the genocide happened. At the end of 1978, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia. Then there was a civil war that dragged on for like 13 years. Then in, the, in 1991, the peace treaty was signed to nominally end the civil war. And that, it was just at the end of the Cold War, called for a large uh, United Nations peacekeeping mission. Uh, and that's what I was part of. And that peacekeeping mission, there was a military component, there was police, and I was part of the human rights component. And our basic mission um, uh, was um, to help lay the foundation so there could be just basic understanding of and respect for um, civil rights and human rights as this war-torn country transitioned, or we hoped it would transition, toward some kind of, uh, of democracy. And so specifically, I mean, it was kind of crazy. I was this young kid, but there was all, all kinds of uh, ethnic and political violence, lots of murders. And we would go and we'd get in a little helicopter flown by these drunk Russians, fly out way into the middle of the countryside in, in Cambodia and just plop down. And people hadn't seen helicopters. They, and people hadn't seen people looking like me in, in many, in decades. 
and then try to, to get a sense of what had happened. Like somebody had been killed, who killed them, why, what should the, U- the UN's position be? And it just, it was a crazy, crazy uh, time. Okay, so you've, you've advanced uh, onto a ton of positions in politics from National uh, Security Council at the White House to senior positions at the State Department to Deputy Staff Director of uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, where you worked with a, a guy that uh, we, we all know now. Yeah. His name's Joe, Joe something exactly. or rather Biden, I think exactly. it is. Yeah, great. So this is a two-parter. First part is... If you could boil all those positions down that I just rattled off to you, what were you trying to accomplish with all of this? Like what was, I know each one had its own thing that you were doing, but if, but what's the, what's baked into the DNA of all of this? Great question. So for me, I mean, I think a lot of people, especially these last years have begun to, to lose faith in what America stands for. But for me, even now, even after four years of this madness, still as the son of a refugee, I really believe in the best values of, uh, of this country. And uh, we've been battered, but those principles are actually pretty great. And, and I, I believe that the United States can be and, and must be, and for many decades has been, um, a real force for good in the world. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing my part to help America do that. And certainly in the, in the Clinton administration, it was just the end of the, of the Cold War. There was a lot of hope that America, and that, that's what the UN mission was. I mean, it was, it can this the international community help bring peace to these war-torn areas? And, and certainly in my international work, I mean, America was the lead country. We rebuilt the world at the end of the Second World War in a very conscious way. It didn't have to be built this way. There didn't need to be a UN. There didn't need to be concepts of human rights and international law. And the U.S. was in a position to kind of create any kind of reality in, in 1945. And, and so I, I, I've really been trying um, to use government to, not, to, to inspire, to work toward government to be at its best. And that's why this, you mentioned Joe Biden, my, my former boss, like this, it's an ongoing process and, and, you know, there's good on all sides of the political spectrum, but we really as a country need to come together to try to solve our biggest problems. And I've always kind of, I've always seen problems in their, in their biggest, broadest sense. And that's why for me, when I think of kind of the big tools of, when I think about systemic change, governments are, are really important. Everybody else in my family is a doctor and they're seeing patients one patient at a time. And that's, that's also a really great way to help people. But one is kind of more that's wholesale really, that's, and that's one's a, a little more so When you say everybody's a doctor, you literally mean all three of, all three of your brothers are a doctor and your dad's a doctor. So my father is a pediatrician, now retired. My mother, who's 82, is still working as a psychoanalyst, a PhD. My oldest brother is an MD, PhD, and a professor at Vanderbilt. My middle brother is an MD sports medicine doctor at Hospital for Special Surgery. And my baby brother, I mean, he's, he's a grown adult with two kids. Uh, he is an orthopedic surgeon in Denver and one of the team doctors for the Broncos. You guys better step your game up. I mean, <laughs> this, I mean this shit is horrible. This is unbelievable. All right, so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta deal with some low-hanging yeah. fruit here because I can't not think about we are in the midst at the recording of this of not knowing who the president of the United States is. And it is a razor thin line. And you happen to be working for the guy who is, uh, has got his head on this, uh, uh, you know, uh, on this line here. What's going through your minds when you're watching this unfold? Because I, I have to assume that you're glued yeah. to the television. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Rob, I worked for Senator, then Senator Biden, Joe, uh, when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and I was deputy staff director. And he's a great, thoroughly decent guy. As you said, an old school politician, really about the one-to-one human, uh, human connection. And in many ways, it's, 
I think there's a feeling among many people, we have to restore something that was lost. I mean, that whatever your your political views, I think that everybody will recognize that, that uh, the Trump presidency was a pretty radical break from a lot of things that we've that, that the United States has stood for in in uh, in the past. So I'm excited um, about um, about uh, Joe Biden, and I think at this point it's it's almost certain that he will be elected president. I, I think it's exciting, um, but one of the things that um, that this election has made clear is that America is we have people living in just these hermetically sealed alternate realities. And so certainly, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know very many people who voted for Trump. For most people who I know, it's like, well, this COVID is absolutely terrible. And we compare the number of deaths in the United States versus Taiwan, where Taiwan acted early and well. It's seven people have so far died in Taiwan and, and the numbers in the United States keep keep taking up. So most people who I know say this was like a fundamental failure. Um, the, the language coming out of the White House um, is so incendiary. It's so divisive. It's alienating our allies and, our, our, uh, and empowering our adversaries. But I, I'm also very mindful that we have to bring this country together. I mean, America is all kinds of very decent people on all sides and if we if we allow ourselves to descend into this kind of tribalism, even if, like me, I mean, I'm pretty open. I have my, my my sympathies are on one side of the political spectrum, but I don't want to discount all of these other people. Who I mean, I'm from Kansas City. I I, I, I certainly know the mid- Midwest pretty well. These are really thoroughly decent people who are just living in a different reality with different different inputs, uh, different news sources, different cultural references. And I, and I just think I'm, I'm certainly very excited about, um, uh, about uh, now president, I'll say it the first time, President Biden um, being, uh, being elected. Um, but he said it right. He said he wants to be the president for everybody, not just for the people who voted uh, for him. And I hope that we can begin stitching this country back together. I mean, we didn't fight World War II as Democrats and Republicans. We fought it as, uh, as Americans. And we have so much more that draws us together than pulls us apart if we allow ourselves to see that. So I'm really hoping, I think now is the last time we need to do, we don't need to do any kind of victory lap. We need to say, well, how can we, how can we come together? Recognizing that we don't agree on everything, but there's a lot that we agree on. And we're in the middle of this terrible pandemic that we need to fight together. Have you seen the social dilemma? On Everybody Netflix? asked that. I've, I've seen the first part. I haven't uh, seen all of it. I know, I know some of the people, Justin and others, who are, um, are featured. So I'm very what, familiar. What you just described yeah. is the social dilemma, but it's exponentially played out in the movie. It's crazy. All right, so we're going to play a drinking game, and it's every time uh, you get another uh, degree, we're going to do a shot. Um, <laughs> as if all of this wasn't enough, you decided to go back to school one more time yep. and get a doctorate. So you got it, you got it in human rights. Am I correct? So I got a, a law degree within so my- law, my law is Harvard. Law, Harvard Law Degree, I okay. focused on international and human rights law when I was at Harvard Law School. But my law degree was a, a JD like, like every other lawyer. Just your, your, average, your, your average everyday Harvard Law Degree. Okay, got it. In 2004, you went down sort of a completely different path for you, or at least my estimation. And that was to write a historical novel um, called The Depths of the Seas, mm-hmm. um, which was essentially about a CIA desk officer, let's mm-hmm. say. What was the motivation behind that book? Why'd you do it? So when I was in Cambodia, both working in the refugee camp in Thailand and then in, uh, living in Cambodia, there was just so much that was happening. I was taking so much in. And I later wrote about that in my PhD dissertation, which was an analysis of why the world failed to respond to the Cambodian genocide. But being around the actual people, there was so much emotion. There was so much just raw feeling of what does it mean to be in that kind of environment on the deepest human levels 
that I, I just I needed to get it out. And the the a, a PhD dissertation with thousands of, of footnotes, it just it left a lot of kind of emotional turmoil. And then it just like it started to I started just imagining stories and scenarios. And and one day I just realized that I needed to put it all together into a novel where I could just be, have a green light to kind of share all this emotional stuff that was welling in, in me. And that was, it was great. I mean, it certainly was, was cathartic. And that was my, my first book and my first, uh, my, my second book, my PhD dissertation, but that time was published, but uh, my first novel. And it, it just, it, 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 it opened me up to just thinking differently about how to express an idea. I mean, in addition, I, I still do a lot of writing that's either kind of academic or, or policy writing, but now I've written three novels and it just, it's, it's a different way of telling a story, a different way of reaching people, even about very real stuff. Okay, now you decide to write another book and that book is called Hacking Darwin. Well, that's, uh, Hacking Darwin is book five. So we have... Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's four more that I missed. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're just going to pick it up from hacking Darwin because yeah, yeah, we're yeah. never going to have enough time to, yeah, to yeah. do your life because you're, you're 217 years old. So that's the, the only way you could have done all of this stuff. Exactly. Um, okay. So the book is officially titled Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. Why that book? You mentioned briefly that I worked on, uh, we, may, we discussed briefly, that I worked on the National Security Council and I worked in the second term of the Clinton administration and my boss there and now close friend was, uh, is a person named Richard Clark. And Dick, if some of your listeners and uh, viewers will remember that he was the one, the White House official who essentially predicted 9-11, but couldn't get the government to, to act as he uh, as he wanted, and then he became very well known after after the 9/11 attacks. I remember so that. So this was well before 9/11. But Dick always used to say that um, the key to effectiveness in Washington and in life wasn't to see what everybody else was seeing; it's to anticipate what are the big challenges that people aren't seeing and try to address them before they they become even bigger uh, problems. He later wrote a book. Uh, 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 called Warnings with R.P. Eddy about these kind of Cassandras. And so for me, at that time, I, I looked around the world and the issues of the genetics and biotech revolutions were, I just felt it was going to fundamentally transform our lives, and yet people weren't really meaningfully talking about them. And so I decided well, I needed to learn everything I could. So I, you know, I had taken a biology class since 10th grade of high school, but I taught myself advanced biology. I um, started re just reading everything I could, interviewing people, learning. When I was ready, I started writing policy articles on the national security implications of the genetics revolution. And I got you know, a lot of great attention for that. I was invited to testify before Congress about these issues. This was many, many years ago. And then I, uh, I realized, like with, um, with my book, The Depths of the Sea, um, that I needed to to tell this story in a way that people could hear, that this was about the future of all of us and not everybody reads you know, obscure foreign policy journals like Foreign Affairs, but everybody, everybody appreciates stories. So that's why I wrote my two uh, near-term sci-fi novels, Genesis Code and, and Eternal Sonata. And, but when I was on the book tours um, for those books and I explained the genetics revolution and the, its implications in my way, because I, like I said, I was self-taught. I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a natural storyteller coming back to your, your genetics, nature, nurture. All of a sudden I could see people's eyes widening that um, they, there was this, they knew there was DNA, they, they'd heard the words, but when there was a story explaining what it meant, people they, they were able to place themselves in that context. And that was when I realized that I needed to write a book, hopefully the book, on the genetics revolution, what it means, where does it come from, how is it going to change all of our lives, and then how can each of us be part of the process for 
determining uh, how we deploy these incredibly powerful uh, technologies. And so that's why with, with um, Hacking Darwin, it's kind of, it's a book about science, but I really um, hope that it's a book that people can take to the beach, that, that families can read together and then discuss over, over dinner. And I've received just some incredible feedback from, from readers that makes me feel that that's, it, that's starting to happen. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the concepts in the book, just at, at a high level. Just some some uh, low hanging fruit questions that I have. Let's say you discuss AI in the book. A lot of people, when you talk about AI, it freaks them out because they think about sort of the inmates running the asylum. Mm-hmm. What what is your thoughts about that? And do you think that we have anything to worry about where you know robots are going to take us over? So every technology has its better and worse uses. Um, and with every technology, we need to ask the question, well, how can we optimize the benefits? I mean, you can just look at just simple things like, like the plow. I mean, the plow, some people say, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. It allowed us um, to increase our agriculture yields, increase population. Other people say, well, wait a second, we've destroyed the planet with all of this agriculture, this stirrup. You think, oh, wouldn't that be great? Um, you, can, you can ride a horse without falling off. Well, the Mongols figured out how to use stirrups to have wars. And, and my, I love Mongolia, but they certainly wiped out a lot of, a lot of people. And so AI, it's incredibly powerful technology, and we need to be worried about it. I mean, we need to be mindful. We need to think now about how we can best architect artificial intelligence so that it serves our purposes and, and, uh, and, and doesn't get away from us. I think that's really important. I think it's important uh, to be cautious. But in certainly in the near term and even in the longer term, there are so many incredible applications of, of AI. We have a million people dying of car crashes every year. That's a million people will be saved once we get these, these erratic humans away from the steering wheels. We have um, so many people dying of undiagnosed diseases from uh, treatments, the diseases that, that will be treatable in the future because we're able to use our AI and, and, and other technologies in order to treat. And so you know, history, technological progress is part of the, uh, of our, it's, it's part of, of what's great about our species. And the key for us is just to make sure it's, it's serving our needs as much as possible. And that's why there really is a place for the Stephen Hawking's and the Elon Musk's and others who are saying, hey, let's be careful and we need to be mindful of that. Um, but that doesn't mean we stop. It means we, we are thoughtful about how we, how we build these kinds of systems. Yeah, Elon Musk is, is basically saying, hey, there should be some sort of regulatory commission because this is, this is the Wild West. We don't know what's going to yeah. happen and we need yeah. to begin now. It always seems that, you know, Congress, politics, whoever you want to say it, is usually behind, you know, like we're just still regulating the internet and we're a little bit behind there. But, uh, but I want to ask you some questions about some of this. I'm going to call it biotech. I don't know if it's biotech or not, but basically... You know, there are people now that are afraid, you know, that if there is a vaccination, that there will be some sort of chip or some sort of something that's going to be put inside these vaccinations and the government is going to be tracking us. Or, you know, there are people on the other side saying, well, you know, you can, you know, you can sort of get uh, something implanted in you and you can figure out whether or not you're, you know, uh, if we ever had something like COVID that was starting to happen, we can ha- we can be monitored and we could know in advance, hey, look, this is happening. And then there, there's all these, yeah, this is going to do this and it's going to be great, but it could also do this. So like, what's your thoughts on I don't know what the word is. I'm calling I'm injectables or something that's yeah. going to go in our body. I don't even know what it's called, but you, you get the yeah. point. Yeah, so um, for sure, technology is coming inside of us. I mean, right now, uh, I'm looking at you now, you have your, your AirPods. I'm, I'm a little bit lower tech. We have our phones that we're carrying around. There are some people who already have that technology inside of them, and those are people with pacemakers and cochlear implants. We're all, you know, I'm sure almost all of your, your uh, viewers and listeners 
um, are immunized. So that is bringing some pretty advanced technologies that's fun into our bodies that's fundamentally changing us. I think most people think it's changing us in a good way, but it's changing us. And I wish we could say, I mean, we're now in this race to develop a, a, a vaccine for, uh, for COVID. And I certainly hope we get one and I hope, or maybe multiples. And, and I, hope, I hope that they work. But it would be too easy to say, oh, anybody who has concerns about vaccines, those are just you know, crazy Jane McCarthy anti-vaxxers. I mean, a lot of them are. But there's a real reason to be concerned because vaccines are systemic changes to the human. In most cases, they are extremely helpful. I and mean, anybody who, is, who live, has gone through Black Plague or all these kinds of smallpox, these terrible things that Ebola, I mean, it's like that's not a time for ideology when Ebola is raging through your village and, and killing lots of, um, of people. But this vaccine is going to be pushed very, it is being pushed very, very quickly. Uh, President Trump has tried to politicize that process to say we're going to get it even more quickly and we need it quickly. But normally there, there's a lot of trials um, for vaccines. And I, I certainly think that, especially now um, that, that our, our government in the United States is taking this process um, seriously. So you know, I, it would be too easy, too facile just to say anybody who's worried um, is just a crazy person. They're not. Having said that, right now with, um, uh, with COVID-19, it's a pretty scary situation. And so I certainly, I, don't, I won't be the first person to get a, a COVID-19 vaccine, but once it's proven safe, I certainly will do it myself. But we can also see, I mean, in, in, in some of the examples you gave, or, or it's, it's easier to see, look, you look at China, um, where there's a massive surveillance state where people are having uh, DNA samples taken, which are being used to keep tabs on people, where there are monitors everywhere uh, that are, are um, uh, monitoring uh, people's coming and, and going. And that's, that's why what I always say is technology brings us to the conversation, but the conversation is ultimately about ethics and values and how those are realized through our regulations and, and political systems. And again, it comes back to this thing. If we have an inclusive um, process that people feel that they're consulted and engaged, not everyone's going to go along, but at least there's a sense of, of empowerment. When people feel that they're totally disempowered and not consulted, I think that's when worse things can happen. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about genetics and anti-aging. How long do you think that we could live for knowing what you know is mm -hmm. coming down the pike? Yeah. So the, the person um, who has lived the longest, who's known to have lived the longest, is a woman named uh, Jean Calmont uh, in France who lived to be 122. So we know that with this biology um, that we're born with, 122 is the upper range of possibility. But I think that we're going to be able certainly to push out average lifespan. And so average is just the, the entire whatever national or global population, how long they live divided by the number of people. And that we can do by just basic simple stuff with uh, better public health and sanitation and exercise and, and nutrition and, and, and all of those kinds of things. But I also think there's no reason why uh, we won't be able to push out um, healthy lifespan just because biology is very hackable. I mean, that's the core message of the, of the biotech revolution is that all of biology, including our own, is ultimately readable and writable and hackable. It's incredibly complex. And so it's hard to change very complex systems. But I, I definitely think um, that we're going to continually to uh, push out average lifespan and healthy lifespan. Uh, and then I, but I do think that over time, even longevity will be able to, to push somewhat. I don't think we're ever going to become immortal in the, these physical forms, but there's, there's a lot of opportunity. In your lifetime, how long do you think you can live? So there's two questions. How long can I live and how long can I live healthy? Um, yeah. In my lifetime, I think 
I think 115 or, or something is probably as long as, uh, as I can live. But for me, the game is how long can I live healthy? And so right now there are people who are super agers who both live a long time and live healthy for a long time. And there aren't that many people who start to have deterioration um, in their 70s who make it to 100, uh, 110. And, and so one of the reasons and one of the benefits of having all of the genome sequencing and all these other interventions is we can study the people um, who are these superagers and they are genetically different from people who aren't superagers, but we don't, need to, we don't need to change everybody else's genes because genes um, instruct cells to make proteins. And so we can just say, well, what are those proteins that are being created and can we find other ways of, uh, of supplying those? So my aspiration, I, and I tell people all kinds of, of junk about living to 150 and whatever, but I feel like if I live to be you know, 115 and I'm healthy most of that time, that won't be because I, I exercise a lot or eat healthy or have a positive attitude. It will only be because of pretty dramatic, exciting, scientific interventions that have already begun to happen and, and will happen increasingly over the, over the course of my, I guess, 63 years to get from here to there. Are you doing anything personally to mess with your genetics? And yeah. or are you... Uh, are you doing anything that doesn't relate specifically to genetics that you're doing in in the world of anti-aging outside of hard targets like diet and exercise? Right. So this surprises people because I'm in these communities. Like one of my very closest friends is the world's expert on metformin, which is a type two diabetes drug that a lot has kind of amazing um, properties for extending healthy lifespan in animals. And then I have other friends who are world's experts in these NAD plus boosters like David Sinclair at, at Harvard. There are people who are also friends um, studying uh, rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressant that leads to about 25% on average extended health uh, lifespan um, in, uh, uh, in animals. And so, and a lot of the people who are um, studying these drugs are so impressed with them that they are taking them themselves. And I know that there's a lot of people who are taking supplements. I don't do it. It's like same with, I don't want to be the first person. These are systemic changes. Um, I, I interviewed and, um, uh, Liz Blackburn at Google Zeitgeist a few years ago, who's the Nobel laureate who developed, uh, the, who had, under our understanding of telomeres, which are these little... Um, bits of code at the end of, of chromosomes. And the idea was yeah, younger people have longer telomeres and older people have shorter ones. So then the people thought, well, why don't we just take this enzyme telomerase that extends your telomeres? It seemed so logical that all these people started doing it and they started, cancer rates started going up. So these are systemic changes. So my intervention, um, my biggest intervention, it's, 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 so, it's blue zone stuff. Um, it's, um, you know, I exercise an hour every day. I eat healthy. I try to sleep. Um, I do all of those things and I'm very closely monitoring the, the science. And so I don't want to be, I don't want to be a human Guinea pig. I know Joe Rogan and I was on his show. I think a lot of that whole community is all about that kind of self-experimentation, but it's hard to do because we need to have really controlled um, studies to figure out what's working. The kind of anecdotal stuff like, oh, I took uh, NMN and, and, and I had a five-hour erection. Like it, it may be that somebody had that, but I, I think we really need, and that's, that's why we need to be studying these things. But I'm, I am, and I write about this in my book, I'm extremely, I think it's extremely likely that we will have a personalized anti-aging drug that's going to be different for, for us, for each of us. But I think we're going to be, we're going to be taking that. And I think that will happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. I don't, I definitely don't want a five hour erection. So I'm right. I'm, I, I get it. Um, speaking of Joe, he had talked about uh, testosterone on one of his shows and uh, you know, I've been bouncing around the idea of doing it myself. Um, not the anabolic stuff, but the bio bioidentical stuff. And uh, about six months ago, I started getting regular testosterone injections. Like no, I didn't notice anything for three months. 
And then by the fourth month, holy shit, like it, like mental clarity, increasing, like just body changing. And it, it got me crazy hooked in this world going, if it's this easy, like I, my, my testosterone was at uh, 400 and the doc said, well, you know, 20 years old testosterone, your, your testosterone was probably at a thousand. So I was like, well, is that good? He said, well, you're 54, so it's normal. And I was like, well, should I get on it? He said, if you want to feel 20. And I was like, is it that easy? And he's like, yep. And I don't know if I'm going to, you know, die of cancer from this or if I'm just going to look good in the casket. I have no idea, but I got to tell you, I'd never felt better in my life. So it's, you know, this, this sort of like, you know, this world is very alluring, but at the same time, you're right. If you start taking growth hormone, well, your organs are going to start to grow too. Do you know what I mean? So, and I think it's, it's hard because there's no doubt there are all kinds of things that we all can do that feel good. The question is just what is the trade-off? I mean, biology, our biology represents 4 billion years of trade-offs. And so there are certain things where, we, where biology is always weighing, well, if we, if we do this a little more, if we give people you know, a bigger nose so they can smell better, it's going to weigh down their head. It's going to be, if we, I mean, there, everything is about, that was a stupid analogy, but. No, um, but I, I got it. It's, it's good. It's, it's, a, it's all a, about a bigger nose is, it may smell better, but it's a bigger nose. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> maybe, no, seriously, maybe you'll get, a few, you, you'll have worse mate selection. It's like, it's a, why do peacocks have these big feathers not to ward off predators because it, increase, it increases their ability to find mates who are attracted to beautiful, beautiful feathers. Which I learned, I interviewed a, a dating person and uh, the guy that's in the club that's got, you know, his, his, uh, his shirt unbuttoned all the way down and the gold chain, you know, yeah. that guy, yeah. um, that's called peacocking. Yes. Yeah. There you was the this? book. Yeah. Well, there was the book who like, I can't remember, but there was a book about all this thing and, and they, they, you they, about Neil, Neil Strauss's book. Yes. And they, they neg the women that you, you find the attractive one and then you insult them and yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I, I could talk to you for days, so I'm going to have to not do 50% of what I wanted to do here, but um, I will wrap this up in a rapid fire rounds uh, for you. What would your friend say is one of your superpowers? You know, I think it's, it's seeing the big, big, big picture and then going from, All right, this is what the future looks like to what are the things that we need to do now to prepare, prepare for it. It's kind of like, I'm from Kansas City, it's like Patrick Mahomes, or kind of seeing the field. Like once you see the field, it helps you to, to take the right, the right steps to move forward. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? You know, I probably collect, my girlfriend will say bad habits. Um, I, so, and I, I forgot that I collect, I had this stamp collection from when I was eight years old that we were cleaning out my parents' house. And I just actually gave a big chunk of it to my friend's kids who were really excited that they didn't even know about stamps. So now I don't collect anything. But when I was a kid, I did all that stuff, baseball cards and, and stamps and, and whatever. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? You know, I guess I, I'll take a, a leap on this one. Um, you know, I'm out in the world a lot and I kind of present, I mean, it's, it's, it's me, it's my life, it's my history, and it's kind of my, my best self. But you know, there's all kind of that other stuff, which is when we all develop these kind of super narratives of ourselves, and then you build a website like you have and I have, and that's like, it's like the idealized version of your of yourself, and it's it's safe and comfortable to be in the world as that person, and it's not dishonest. But unlike everybody else, I kind of have this sense of this self that's kind of more vulnerable and more whatever. And so I kind of I live the the life in this role, um, and I enjoy it. Um, but even in my personal, in my most intimate relationships with my girlfriend or whatever, it's like, it's really, I have to get out of that role to really connect. And that's, it's true on a personal level, but even in kind of public stuff and just kind of, there's like a real, like a rawness that everybody has. And so I feel like I I interact with the world as, as kind of the me, a capital M me, but the lowercase M me, 
I don't get asked. I, that makes it so well said. That makes perfect sense because there is, when you've accomplished what you've accomplished and you have the degrees that you have, there are stories that are associated with that. There is mirrors that show up when somebody's having a conversation with you. And it is very easy, I would suspect, to feel like you got to play that role because it is a, a portion of you, but it, but it is just a portion. That was, that was yeah. really well said. Yeah, uh, so okay. Go ahead. Say, one say. more thing on that. When I was running for Congress in uh, 2004, I had to constantly remind myself because you're out there in the world, you're, you're in parades and everyone's got your, your, your face and their name on their shirt and all the banners. And you just kind of have to remind yourself, this is a piece of me. But if I think this is all of me, I'm going to make myself less. That's really, really good. Um, okay, uh, two questions. Last one is, what is your guilty pleasure? That one is easy. Um, every single morning of my life, um, I have a hot chocolate. It takes about an hour to make. It's not like I'm doing everything for an hour, but it has to simmer. It has multiple ingredients. And it literally, it's like a... 10 gazillion calories, but I get so much pleasure out of it. And then I have, I mentioned this in my Joe Rogan interview, because he, I don't know how he picked up on this, but I also have a secret second life as a, as a chocolate shaman. And so when I speak at tech conferences and I say, all right, I'm going to speak it, I'll do a keynote at the conference. But then that night I want to lead a, 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 a cacao ceremony. So I do it and it's, I, I actually kind of love it. How difficult would it be for you to get the recipe of your morning chocolate to put in the show notes? Absolutely. And I'll even tell you right now, because it's so good. So here's okay. what you do. First, um, uh, boil, uh, boil the milk. Then you add three ingredients. One this is uh, miso paste, Japanese miso paste, just like a little bit of that. Um, and then you, I'm going to use specific ingredients. And then you have Marie Bell Aztec hot chocolate. It's like a, it's like a powder, but it's basically ground up uh, dark chocolate. Marie Bell, you can get it on Amazon. And then I use Tarani um, dark chocolate syrup. And I add, so I have those three ingredients. I bring that to kind of a boil and keep stirring it occasionally. Then I turn it down to simmer. And then I let that simmer for like a half an hour. And then I get that little, it's like a little um, frother. It's like a little thing. Yeah. It's like, and then I, I got put one. that in there, do that for about 30 seconds. Then I turn up the heat. So it gets so boiling hot before it boils over. And then I serve it. And what are the, uh, what's the, uh, the breakdown of how much of this and how much of that? Okay. So, um, I, I do like half a teaspoon of the miso powder, a tablespoon and a half of the Marie Bell chocolate, and then three squeezes. This is the guilty pleasure because the three squeezes of the Tarani dark chocolate sauce, and you can just keep adding more based on your palate, but you'll just keep adding it. And it, it literally, it's, it's like pudding, it's, but it's delicious. All right, I'm all in. In the last minute we have, what one question would you like to ask me? So I guess the, the thing is with, with you, I mean, you're all about um, how do we find the balance between our mission in life and kind of having fun with that? And, and how, do you, how do you think about that? And how do you think about, um, there's like the word play, it has a connotation of frivolity, but it doesn't need to. Like, how do you think about connecting kind of the mission stuff and play so that everything is, is driving meaning? When you are in the shower and you get an idea, it's because you're not working. It's because you are not grinding and banging away at a computer. When you are on vacation and you come back with a notebook full of ideas, it's because you're not grinding. We are not meant to be one dimensional and work only. There are so many components to us from the spiritual to the romantic to the fight. Like there's just a million components to us, but we dominate in one area, which is work. And I would argue that if you're willing to spend some of that time outside of work, that your work will grow because you're not exclusively in work. Yep. 
I totally you said it beautifully. I totally Amen. Listen, yes. I got I gotta end this because I, I promised yep. you a hard out and I don't want to yep. be the guy that didn't give you the hard out. Anyway, really just my great, great pleasure. And thanks for doing it. Great to meet you. And and, and thanks. Dude, it was awesome. It was every awesome. bit of, of what I thought it was going to be. Enjoy awesome. the rest of the weekend. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Alrighty, bye, man. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.